Welcome back to The Wrestling Room and welcome back to the book of Acts. We're going to look at one phrase in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 in just a moment. But I want to say this. The more I study the scripture and the more I study Jesus, the more I realize that he came for one reason essentially. And that is to set us free. He came for freedom. Freedom. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He came to set us free from the bondage of the evil one, from the bondage of Satan, who has chained us, who has bound us to do his will, the scripture says. And so we are watching in our world our freedoms, our external freedoms, being snatched away and disintegrating right before our eyes. But here's what I want to tell you. Jesus didn't firstly come to set us free from external oppression. He came to set us free from internal oppression. He came for our internal freedom. And I have watched so many believers who understand the concept of forgiveness, the concept of forgiveness, who are living bound up in their own self-pity and shame and condemnation because of failure because of their failure. They know about forgiveness in their head, but it's never, ever impacted the way they really live. And I know all about this. For in 2007, I bailed out of ministry, a dire failure in scandal, and for the next decade lived in that stinking, rotting cell of self-pity and regret and shame and condemnation. I know of it well. And I can tell you, Jesus sets us free from that. And that's what I want to take, take us and talk about today. That's where I want to take us. That's what I want to talk about today is that people, instead of looking to the Savior, look at themselves and focus on their failure. And as a result, are stuck. <laughs> They're stuck. And their faith is in the ditch. In the ditch. And that's why when I read Acts 1 verse 15... It stopped me in my tracks because in Acts 1.15, Peter stands up. He has failed Jesus epically just a month and a half before. But he stands up and he begins to lead this baby church prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. The believers are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is coming. The Holy Spirit will come. Tongues of fire and the whole world will be turned upside down. But Peter stands up just prior to this and begins to lead after this epic failure. He leads with confidence and dignity and wisdom and vision. How could he do that? He had failed so badly. Well, the answer is he had had an encounter with Jesus with the king, and it shifted his eyes off of his poor, pitiful self and onto Jesus. In the last teaching, I mentioned a story about Mario Andretti, a legendary car racer who was asked, how does one become a world-class car racer? And his answer was simple, don't look at the wall. Your direction will go in the same direction as your focus. And if you're focusing on the wall, you'll crash into the wall. And we talked about how people, as people, it's so easy, especially as believers, as people of faith, instead of staying focused, concentrated on the Lord Jesus, we get distracted 
by other people. And the group we talked about in the last teaching is other believers. We get our eyes focused and fixated on other believers. Now, we can learn a lot from other believers, but we cannot concentrate, fixate, focus on them. Because when we do, we'll end up in the ditch, especially believers who we've looked to for leadership, for mentorship, for uh, guidance, and then they fail, they drop us, they abandon us, they forsake us. What do we do with that? How do we survive that? How do we move forward after that? And so that's last teaching. This week, we're going to talk about what do we do when we fail? How did Peter stand up having failed so miserably and lead with a humble confidence? How could he do it? So what do we do when we fail, when we have blown it maybe over and over and over and let God and other people down? Well, there are two things we know about Peter, and I'm going to share those with you today. Number one, Peter had seen something. He could stand with that humble confidence because he had seen something. But number two, because he knew something. And so I'm going to share those two thoughts with you today. First of all, Peter had seen something. Let me give you some background. Jesus has been crucified and buried and it is now Sunday morning, and the ladies are going to the tomb with perfume. They are going to try to cover up the smell of his rotting corpse. But when they get to the tomb, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and there's an angel there. And the angel says, Jesus isn't here. He's been, he's been risen. And he instructs the women to go tell the disciples, and P.S., tell Peter. Mark 16, verse 7. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, why did the angel add the little P.S. and Peter? Here's why. Peter had checked out. Peter was confident that he was booted off the team. When the women would have come and talked to the disciples, Peter was confident he wasn't one of those anymore. He was permanently benched. He was a spiritual shipwreck. He was a washout. Peter was not one of the disciples anymore. So the angel had to say, you tell the disciples and Peter. And that's what happens when we fail oftentimes. We feel disqualified. We're not even on the third team anymore. We're not on the JV. We're not even on third team. We've been kicked right off the team. And maybe you feel that way. Well, fast forward to John chapter 21. Jesus said he would meet them in Galilee. And here you have Peter. He's gone back to his career in fishing. Ministry is now in the rearview mirror. That was a thing of the past. He bombed out of that. Now he's back on the construction site, back in the office, and doing what he knew best. He knew how to fish. So he's up to his eyeballs and, and fishing nets and boats. And Jesus shows up on the shore and tells the disciples, throw the net overboard and you're going to catch some fish. And they do, 153. And Peter, with his eyes as big as, he, as they could be, he jumps into the, to the sea and he swims ashore. And there's Jesus with a fire and breakfast. And Peter sits down, soaking wet, across from Jesus, filled with shame, wallowing in his failure, feeling thoroughly disqualified, and he looks across that fire into the eyes of Jesus, expecting fully to see disgust and contempt and condemnation and disappointment. 
But to his shock and unbelief, he sees anything but that. He sees life in the eyes of Jesus. He sees love in the eyes of Jesus. He sees hope in the eyes of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Peter had quit. He had thrown in the towel. He was done. But Jesus had other ideas. He wasn't about to let Peter quit. I remember a story of Jack Welch, the CEO of General Electric. He had a young leader who, as a young leader, had made a very bad decision and cost the company over a million dollars. And Jack called that young man into his office and that young leader showed up with his resignation letter in his hand and with his head down, fully expecting to be fired, he hands his resignation letter to Jack Welch. Jack takes a look at it, hands it back and says, resign. No, you're not gonna resign. We've just invested a million dollars in your training. And that is exactly the way Jesus was thinking of Peter. It's our failure that gives us our platform. It's the, it builds the stage from which we speak. It's our mess that gives us our message, our test that provides us with our testimony. Friends, we can't truly bless other people until we have bled ourselves. And Jesus looked across the fire into the eyes of Peter that morning, and he saw a man who was deeply grieved, deeply repentant of his sin. He hated his sin. And he just needed a second chance. He just needed an encouraging word. And Jesus extended grace, forgiving grace, restoring grace, strengthening grace. And then Jesus recommissioned Peter. Peter, Tend to my lambs. Feed my little lambs. Peter, lead my people. He recommissioned Peter and he said, Pete, get back in the game. Get back in the game. Lead my people, Peter. And it transformed Peter. It transformed Peter. Listen to what Psalm 113 verses 7 and 8 says. This is the heart of our great God. It says he lifts the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to make them sit with princes. Friends, this is what God does. He lifts us out of spiritual bankruptcy. He lifts us up out of the spiritual garbage dump of our own sin, of our own self-loathing, of our own failure. Psalm 23 says, He is our rock and our redeemer. We stand on the rock, but we slip off into the mud, and he pulls us up out of the mud, and he cleanses us, and he puts us back on the rock. And then we slip off again into the mud of failure again, and our great God lifts us up out of the mud, out of the dust, out of the garbage heap of our own failure and our own sin, and he puts our feet back on the rock, and he does it over and over and over. He's so patient. He's so kind. I have felt and known this kindness of God. Prior to 2007, my great failure in ministry, I preached about the grace of God. I preached about the kindness of God, and I knew it in my head, but it took 
deep failure. It took dark years in the jail cell of self-loathing and self-pity before the kindness of God, the practical grace of God, penetrated my mind and got down into my heart and set me free. Romans chapter 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. God showers us, showers us, showers us with the, with the goal of us turning away from the rags and wretchedness of our sin and embracing his beauty and perfection. Peter had seen something. He had experienced something. He saw grace in the eyes of the Lord. He had experienced being lifted up to sit with princes, being recommissioned. And friends, I will tell you this, if you are still in a jail cell of your own self-pity, your own self-loathing, your own shame and condemnation, here's my exhortation to you. Grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 21. Sit down, put yourself in the feet of Peter, put yourself into that story. I want you to be in the boat. I want you to dive into the water, wade ashore. I want you to sit down at the fire with Jesus and look across that fire into the eyes of Jesus and look at the grace that is coming back at you. Hear the words of Jesus recommissioning you. See what Peter saw. Experience what Peter experienced. It's for you and it's for me, just as much as it was for Peter. So brothers and sisters, Peter saw something, but that experience wasn't enough. Peter would fail again and again and again, and so will we. Peter was able to stand up in that group of 120 people because not only had he seen something, but he knew something. Scripture says, and Peter wrote it, he says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to grow in knowledge. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth sets us free. Lies keep us in bondage. And so Peter didn't, he knew that he was forgiven by God's grace. He knew and had experienced the restoration of God's grace, but he also knew that he had a new and privileged identity because of God's grace. Now, let me explain this to you. Friends, listen, Romans 5 verses two says, verse 2 says this, We stand in grace. We stand in grace. Not only do we receive grace and experience grace, but we stand in grace. It's our standing. It's our position. It's our identity. Let me read Romans 5, 1 and 2 to you. It says this, because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us, we have been made right. That's the term justification. We've been justified in God's sight by faith. And we have peace with God. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. That is grace. Where we now stand. Where we now stand. Peter knew that he wasn't just forgiven and restored by grace, but he stood in grace. Let me explain this. 
because of what Jesus has done, brothers and sisters, because of his death on the cross in our place, we have a new identity. We have a new standing. We have a new status. And what I want to do is to show you and give you a before and after picture, before Jesus and after Jesus, because there were three very condemning characteristics of our identity that have changed because of Jesus. Number one, our moral identity has changed. We have a new moral identity because of Jesus. What does the scripture say? It says we, Romans 5.1, have been made right in God's sight. We've been made right. Before Jesus, we were wrong. <laughs> we thought wrongly. We walked wrongly. We reasoned wrongly. We were in opposition to Jesus. We were going the wrong direction. There's a phrase from the, the American prison system back in the 1900s called dead man dead man walking and it represents and it, and it's and it's uh, the context of it is a person who leaves their cell who has been condemned to death and is walking to the execution chamber and as they walk down the hall a cry goes out dead man walking <laughs> and everybody knows somebody is going to their death their life is just about to end well, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says of us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a dead man walking. I was a dead man walking. You were a dead woman walking. We were sons of disobedience. We were as good as dead spiritually, as good as dead eternally. But after Jesus, it says you have been made right. This death sentence because of our sin has been cleared. That IOU of debt has been torn up. Jesus paid for it. We have been declared righteous or declared right. We were wrong, now we're right. Our moral identity has changed, but not only our moral identity. This passage talks about our relational identity. Our relational status, our relational standing has been altered. Before Jesus, friends, the Bible says we are enemies. We were enemies of God. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, Everyone on the planet is a child of God. We're all children of God. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. We are all creations of God. But prior to Jesus, we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.3 that we were children of wrath. We were antagonistic against God. Our sin made us an enemy of God. But after Jesus, Ephesians 2.19 says you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. You're part of the family. James 2.23 says you are friends of God. This passage, Romans chapter 5, says you have peace with God. The Bible teaches that we're the sons and daughters of God. We are royalty because of what Jesus has done. So not only do we have a new moral identity, a new relational identity, but thirdly, we have a new social identity, a new social status, one of great, great privilege. Now, it, the scripture says that Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege, grace. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me illustrate this way. My, one of my favorite preachers, Willie George, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, tells a story where he was invited by a friend 
to attend a football game between Oklahoma Sooners and the Texas Longhorns in Norman, Oklahoma, in the stadium known as the Palace. And not only was he invited to attend the game, he was invited to sit with his friend in the luxury box suite. If you've ever experienced that, it's incredible. <laughs> they're, they're incredible. It's like a, like a, a luxury liner. It's like a mega first class if you're flying, waiting on, being waited on hand and foot, served the most delicious food, the most delicious drinks, enjoying all the luxury amenities, the best view, and the most comfortable seats in all of the stadium. And there he is. And here's the crazy thing. Willie was from Texas. He was a Texas Longhorns fan. He wanted the Sooners to fumble. He wanted the Sooners quarterback to throw an interception. He wanted his Texas Longhorns to block the Sooners punts. He wanted the Sooners to miss their kicks. He was cheering for Texas. But there he was because of this relationship with his friend sitting in the luxury box suite in the palace, the Oklahoma Sooners Stadium. And it was only because of this relationship that he was there. Listen to what Romans 5.8 says. It says, God demonstrated his unique one-of-a-kind love for us in that while we were still Texas Longhorn fans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, do you realize this? That while we had a fist in God's face, while our back was turned to him, while our middle finger was up to him, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, invited us into the luxury box suite with him. While we were yet sinners, in opposition to him, that is the new social identity or status that we have gained because of the Lord Jesus. It's ridiculous. It's undeserved privilege. Now, some of you may say, well, I'd rather be in the bleachers. I don't really care about the luxury box suite. Well, here's the reality. Before Jesus, you weren't even in the stadium. I wasn't even in the stadium. We were outside the stadium in darkness, in misery, in depression. Here's what Ephesians 2.13 says about us before Jesus. Paul says, remember, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no access to any of the blessings of God, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a dire, dark place. Now, after Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought into the stadium. Romans 5.2 says, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Brought us into this place in the Greek literally means he's given us or granted us admission or access. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, friends, we were outside of the stadium, outside of grace, but he paid the ticket. He bought our ticket. He paid our way into the stadium and not just into the stadium, but all the way to the luxury box suite. And you say, well, how do you know? Listen to Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in transgressions, 
God made us alive with Christ. He brought us into the stadium. By grace, you've been saved. That's our privilege. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just say, you need to be down in the bleachers. I'm up here in the luxury box suite. He invited us to come right up into the luxury box suite with him. All the privileges that Jesus has, we have because of what Jesus has done, because of the grace of God. It's unbelievable. It's incredible to think about it. So I want to ask this question, then how do we get in on all of this? How do we access all of this? Guys, it's very simple. It's right here in the passage. In Romans 5, 2, it says, by faith, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. Now, get this. This is important. It's by faith that we enter into this. Now, what is faith? I want to put it in layman's terms. Get it real, and like my dad would always say, put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I want to make it as simple as I can. Here's what faith is. Jesus did it. That settles it. I believe it, and I receive it. That's faith. <laughs> Jesus did it. That settles it. I believe it, and I receive it. Faith. I've heard it said, God, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's not right. God said it. That settles it. Now, I have a choice to believe it or not. I have a choice to receive it or not. God has done it. God has offered it. Now, it's up to me to believe it and to receive it. Because here's what happens. We think it's about our behavior. We think it's all about this access into the stadium, this access into the luxury box suite of God's grace, this privilege is based on our behavior, what we've done, or what we feel about what we've done. No, it's not. It doesn't matter, matter whether you had a really good day today and feel really worthy of that box suite. doesn't matter if you had a horrible day and feel very unworthy. You still get access to the grand privileges and undeserved privileges of God because of your new status. You're part of the family. Praise the Lord. Listen, you might have been a schmuck today. You still have access. You might have been a saint today. You still have access. Not because of your behavior. It's because of your new standing, your new status. Undeserved privileges. We stand in grace. Now, I've had people who tell me, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person compared usually to that dirt bag over there is what they're saying. They're usually comparing themselves. And they would say, I think that when I get to heaven, my good will outweigh my bad. I'm quite confident that I'm in because my good outweighs my bad. And here's what I'd like to say to you, respectfully but firmly, I assure you that isn't the case. I assure you that your bad far outweighs your good. I assure you that your sin far outweighs your righteousness. And mine does too. Well, how do I know this? Because of God's ultrasound. God's ultrasound. You say, well, what in the world is God's ultrasound? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 is God's ultrasound. 
that looks right past the scam and the sham and the hypocrisy and all the masks that we put on and all the games that we play goes right to the core of our being, right to our heart. It sees everything. And here's what God's ultrasound sees. And here's the report. I'm going to read it to you. You ready? Here's the report. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? That is God's ultrasound report of your heart and my heart without Jesus. We don't even know how bad it really is. We don't know how deep it really goes, how dark our heart really is. I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to have all of your actions, your thoughts, your motives, your secrets, your habits, your greeds, all of your coveting, your lusting, your lying, your gossip, your negative thoughts, all of your sick and twisted behavior, we all have it. And all the myriads of times you had the opportunity to do good, but you didn't do it because you didn't feel like it, because of selfishness. Would you be willing to have all of that broadcast up on the big screen of heaven for everyone to see, your wife to see, your kids to see, your neighbors to see, all your coworkers to see, for the whole world to see. I would never, speaking for myself, sign up for such a horrendous thing, for such a horrific exposing, never ever. It is God's mercy, brothers and sisters, that he doesn't use the good versus bad measuring stick. We would all be doomed. We would all be damned. We would all go down in flames. It would be horrific. And God knew that, and that's why Jesus came. Listen, we don't stand our status, our standing, our identity isn't based on what we've done. It is based on what Jesus has done, not how we feel. Not what we've done, but what Jesus has done. By faith in Jesus. And Peter knew this. And when he stood up, he was empowered, not only by, by what he had seen in the eyes of Jesus, heard from the mouth of Jesus, but what he knew because of what Jesus had done. He was a new man. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are gone. New things have come. We have a new identity, a new status. We are in grace. We stand in grace. So I want to conclude with this question. How do we know that all of this will hold up? How do we know that God won't just get tired of our failure and our constant blowing it and say, My grace has run out. I'm just done. And well, how do we know God won't just throw up his hands and said, I've had it with you? Because this box suite, this luxury box suite is not just for one game. It's not just a visitor's privilege. It is forever. Forever. We stand in grace. Now, what does that mean? Not only does it mean that we have a new standing or status, but it means we have a new confidence. A new confidence. Stand means to make firm or steady, to remain fixed. And as my wife said, to be bolted down, to be bolted down, and it infers absolute unwavering confidence. 
And there's so many believers. They're all over the boat, all over the place on this emotional roller coaster. Am I in? Am I out? Am I a friend of God? Or am I an enemy of God? Am I in the house of God or I'm in the doghouse, where am I? And they're all over emotionally because they have never understood their identity. You are bolted down. You can be absolutely confident that if you're in Christ and Christ is in you and you've received the, his grace because of his blood and his death, you don't have to live on this emotional roller coaster. Your shame and your condemnation doesn't have to run you and rule you. You can leave this jail cell, this rotting, stinking place of condemnation, and walk into freedom. And I say this from experience, because I've done it. And there, freedom is a whole lot better than bondage, I can tell you that. So how can I be this absolute confident? How can I be so confident? How can I be certain? Here's why. Romans 5 verse 20, and I want you to go there with me. Romans 5 20, and here's what it says, and I'll finish with this thought. It says this, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Let me read it again. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Sin abounding means that there is a lot of it, <laughs> that it exists in abundance, in extraordinary quantity. Friends, I'm not going to beat around the bush. If you've got skin on, <laughs> your sin abounds. Now, let me give you a picture of how this works. To our east is Lake Washington. Lake Washington is a lake 22 miles from south tip to north tip. It is 108 feet deep, average. Its deepest point is 214 feet. It has 21,600 acres of water, 33.8 square miles. Lake Washington has just over 782 billion gallons of water. That's a lot of water. We have a boat. We've never driven from tip to tip. It's a huge lake. It's a beautiful lake, a huge lake. But I want to use the analogy. This lake represents your sin. It abounds. There are many acres of sin. It's very deep. My sin, your sin. Let's not joke around. Let's not try to fool each other. Our sin abounds. But if I turn west... And I go down the hill just about 10, 15 minutes. I run smack dab into the Pacific Ocean, the Puget Sound, part of the Pacific Ocean. Sin abounds, but grace does much more abound. It superabounds is what the Greek word says. Let me give you some stats about the Pacific Ocean. Whereas Lake Washington is 33.8 square miles, the Pacific Ocean is 60 million square miles. <laughs> Lake Washington averages 108 feet deep. The Pacific Ocean averages 13,000 feet deep, which th with 36,161 feet being its deepest recorded point. Lake Washington has 782 billion gallons of water, whereas the Pacific Ocean has just over 187 quadrillion 
gallons of water. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I could dump Lake Washington into the Pacific Ocean 239,130,434 times. Over 239 million times I could dump Lake Washington into the Pacific Ocean. Brothers and sisters, our sin abounds. That is the truth. But the grace of God, when I turn west, super abounds. That word literally means it is immeasurable. We can measure the water in the Pacific Ocean. We cannot measure God's grace. It is immeasurable. Just as God is infinite, his grace is infinite. It's infinite. And Peter was able to stand up and lead without apologizing and stuttering and stammering and look people right in the eyes because he understood, though his sin was great, his failure was epic, it paled in comparison to the immeasurable ocean of God's grace. And the same is true of you and me. Friends, if you want to live, and friend, if you want to live in condemnation and shame, then have the courage to take responsibility for it because you don't have to. If you choose to, it's a choice that you've made because you can turn and look east at your own sin and wallow in it. But you have the choice to turn and look west at the immeasurable ocean of the grace of God that will engulf your sin well over 239 million times. <laughs> we have a new standing, a new status. We are bolted down in grace. And because of it, our sin, though it is great, is dwarfed by the incredible, immeasurable grace of God. And so when you begin to... Uh, hear the voice of the enemy reminding you of your sin, you can say, yes, that's true. The East is true of my life. The Lake Washington of my sin is true, but I'll tell you what is truer, devil. There is an immeasurable ocean and it's all mine. It's all mine because I stand in grace. I stand in grace. My status is the ocean of grace consumes all of my sin. I stand in grace. So brothers and sisters, when we fail, we can get back up like Peter. We can stand up. We can lead. We can be confident. We report to only Jesus. We don't report to the other these other people. We are responsible to, accountable to King Jesus. And when Peter was reinstated and recommissioned, the people-pleasing in Peter went away, and he realized, I've been given a second chance. I will serve Jesus with everything I have. My sin is washed away. I've been recommissioned, and so have you. So have you. We stand in grace. I pray that this will resonate so strongly with you, and I want to give you one final exhortation as we wrap up, and that is this. Grab John chapter 21 and go sit by the fire across from Jesus and look into the eyes of Jesus and receive his grace. And then friends, go to Romans 5, 1 and 2 and take your place, bolted down, standing resolutely with absolute confidence, looking west 
at the unlimited, immeasurable resource of the grace of God. And then smile and rejoice and raise your hands and thank Jesus for all he's done and for your status and your standing because of him. Jesus, may you take these words and minister to our hearts. May we rise up, even though external freedoms are being taken away, our, we are free internally, free to serve you, free to praise you, free to utter your name and share with other people. We're free. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me in the wrestling room. My prayer is that these words will literally be strength and life injected into your body and into your spirit. So have a great week. We'll see you here next time in the wrestling room. Have a great week.